This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to a Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson. Fraser, in your Telegraph column this week, you focus in on the refugee crisis with over 2 million people now thought to have fled Ukraine and just how woeful the Home Office and the UK government's response have been to these people in need. In that column, you reveal something very interesting. You note that while a lot of the anger and resentment has been focused on Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, actually it seems as if Boris Johnson and Number 10 are the ones who are really holding back on offering a more generous settlement. Yeah, that's right. So the Home Office has been asking to widen it. I mean, not making it wildly generous. Just saying, well, right now, for example, Ukrainians need to prove that they're, they're related to a permanent UK resident. That excludes students and it excludes temporary workers. Now, Priti Patel was saying, look, let's just include these guys and, and widen up a bit. Because Britain, you know, Boris Johnson's saying he's expecting 200,000 Ukrainians. But that obviously isn't happening. If you look at the petty pace of people being given visas, it's not on the track at all. So it was number 10 who rejected her idea, which I think is quite interesting because Priti Patel is often cast as the as the hardliner. But no, she is, for a start, her, the daughter of asylum seekers herself from Midia Means Uganda. She was actually quite progressive in helping get reforms on the Hong Kong Chinese as well. She and Dominic Rabb put together a pretty impressive, pretty generous settlement. Of course, you need to do it in a way which shows that you're, you're tough and you're fair. But she was wanting to widen them. Number 10 pushed back because Boris Johnson is concerned about a whole bunch of things. But as you say, Fraser, it isn't as if Pretty Patel is saying, let's open our arms and our doors to everyone. Even if her reforms were to go through, it's estimated that that would bring in thousands more Ukrainian refugees, not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. If you continue to compare even what's being floated by the UK to the rest of Europe, it's sorely lacking. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, at the last counts, we were had 1,500 visas were given. Now, in Sweden, right, a country with a population one-sixth of ours, they're taking in 4,000 a day. And a friend of mine has actually taken in a asylum seeker family in Malmo. She did that through her work. So the work was saying, look, anybody here want to give help to Ukrainians? And they volunteered, and it went very quickly. And that's what happens if you give Ukrainians free movement. You basically allow society to sort it out. That is what's happening in Germany, for example. We're seeing very moving scenes at Berlin Central Station where Germans are showing up with placards saying, I've got a room, I've got two rooms, and they're being paired with refugees on the spot with no bureaucracy at all. And Britain, we're thinking of doing something similar. Michael Gove's coming up with a plan where he's going to allow Brits to accommodate refugees. But there is so much red tape in that. First of all, the hosts need to be vetted and approved. Then they need to be giving a commitment for something like six months. They haven't decided on the exact time span. But it's going to be an incredibly bureaucratic version of what's already happening in Germany and France and in Sweden. Except there, you'd think Conservatives would be saluting the little platoons, thinking, isn't it great how an unprecedented humanitarian crisis, and this is, by the way, the biggest migration crisis since World War II, it is so far being met by an unprecedented public response. 
And amongst all of the disastrous and dismaying scenes we've seen over the last two, three weeks, I think it is worth just pausing and reflecting on the incredible generosity of the Polish people, of the German people. Even in in Moldova, tiny Moldova, they've taken in something like 80,000 refugees as equivalent to 3% of their population. These are people who don't have much, but they're giving all they can. So there are arms and there are hearts open all over Europe at a time of Ukrainians coming in. And Britain is now the outlier, and we've got so much red tape that the Home Office have literally had to call in the army to help them cut through this red tape. And that red tape's going to make perfect the enemy of the good. That timeline that you just suggested that a host would have to sign up for at least six months seems like a big mistake to me. When our colleague Max, Jeffrey, and I went to Calais this week, we met a group of refugees who had ended up spending the night on somebody's couch around 1.30 in the morning because this person had heard their story and had taken pity on their situation. They needed a bed that night. So if you're going to find people, you know, you will find probably a lot of people who are willing to offer a bed for four to six weeks. If you're going to say you have to offer a bed for six months, you're going to get fewer people coming forward. And the only real result of that is more Ukrainians not quite knowing where they're going to be for the night or being put up in taxpayer funded accommodation, which, you know, is fine as far as I'm concerned. Frankly, that's a much better use of my tax money than spending it on HS2. But actually, if you could do this without putting the burden on the taxpayer, that's even better. And you'd think conservatives would be attracted to that. Absolutely. You'd think conservatives would think, because of course, I mean, when you look at the pattern of refugees, quite often they just want to spend, you know, find somewhere to sleep for that week and they get a base, then they can work out what they want to do after that. Especially if you let them work, right? Yeah, Which it, is another big issue of red tape in the Home Office. They refuse to change their mind on this idea that, that refugees perhaps could work in the UK while they wait for their official status. Yeah, so you can certainly see, if we were doing what literally every other country in Europe is doing, then we would be, first of all, abolishing the visa requirements. We'd be giving them free movement. We'd be allowing them to stay with whoever wanted to offer them a bed. And we do have a technology. Airbnb has got a, a website where you can go in, offer yourself as a host for a refugee family. You can specify if you want a smoker, a non-smoker, a family, kids, do you want pets? You know, you can. the technology exists to put tens of thousands of willing hosts directly in contact with tens of thousands of refugees. But we're now seeing in Britain, in Britain alone in Europe, is the government getting between these two people and saying, no, we're not going to allow this. We want you hosts to register with us. We want you refugees to come and claim we don't want you to work. We want you to claim benefits. We want you to take taxpayers' money. And the Ukrainians aren't coming here wanting taxpayers' money. They're wanting shelter. And they're wanting the, you know, they, they've got no problems with working. I mean, one of the striking statistics I found out recently was that two-thirds of those granted temporary worker and license in Britain are Ukrainian. So that means that there are more than twice as many Ukrainians than all the nationalities put together of seasonal workers in Britain. So we have got, you know, hotels, bars, we've got even the Germans are asking for Ukrainian teachers, for example. The Germans are quite right, there's going to be Ukrainian kids needing school. So what do you do? You need Ukrainian teachers. So they're saying, right, are there any teachers coming in here? Please register with us if so. So we're seeing this incredible speed and almost collapse of bureaucracy in Europe, where Brexit Britain, which left the EU supposedly to be free of this bureaucracy, we're the ones who just simply cannot handle asylum without oceans of red tape. 
And if they were, of course, able to work, I, I was speaking to a Tory MP the other day who had just come back from a hotel in um, the Cotswolds. He wanted to stay a week. And the hotel said, no, sorry, we're only open for three days, not because of demand, plenty of demand, but we simply can't find the staff. Now, that is a problem in itself in this country. 1.3 million vacancies, a record high, and you can't find people in these sectors. So you're getting, I mean, if this was a recession, I can understand people thinking, right, we can't let all of these Ukrainians come in looking for a job when there aren't any jobs. But no, we've got the opposite problem in this country. We have got a massive worker shortage in precisely the sectors where Ukrainians are skilled. So the stars are aligned. I've been reading the Polish press quite a lot recently. One of the great things about Google Translate is that you can, you know, go country to country and see what they're saying. And the Polish Labour Minister was making this, you know, really quite nice statement to Parliament, thinking, yeah, we are taking in one and a half million refugees. This is a country, Poland, that rejected all the 2015 refugees. But he's saying, you know what, our unemployment is at a record low a labour market is absorptive, so we can actually take them all in. And we all know that migrants create demand themselves. That's one of the strange reasons why a country, as long as government doesn't get in the way, is very elastic in its labour force. And the polls are saying, as Merkel put it, we can do this. Britain is saying, no, we can't. Alone in Europe, we're saying, no, we can't. Yes, even even if there were a recession, even in those tough economic times, if you actually allow the market to change and, and to adapt and you don't try to sort of regulate exactly what you want to see happen, I think you can you can handle that influx. When Max and I were in Kelly, we spoke to several refugees who were talking about why they wanted to come to the UK, talking about what they would do here. We spoke to a young woman named Roxolana, and here's what she had to say to me. Would you be looking to go back to school? Would you be looking to get a job? What would you like to do? To university, obviously, because I want to have like this degree. I want to go to university, and obviously then I would walk, work, work. You know, Fraser, listening to that about how much she would want to work if she came to the UK, she was studying to be an interpreter and all the skills that she could bring. It is just absolutely baffling to me anyway that the government here wouldn't want somebody like Roxolana to be coming here to, to be contributing. We were speaking to another young man, a Ukrainian refugee, who was watching the Home Secretary's comments, welcoming comments, saying, you know, we're not turning anybody away. And he was laughing and he was saying, that's wrong, though. I mean, even amongst the refugees, there's a bit of bafflement. It's become a bit of a punchline that the UK is saying one thing and they know, they know they're doing another. There was serious disappointment when we were there that that it was becoming increasingly clear they weren't going to open up a visa center in Calais. And they just, they didn't understand why they would ask them to travel 75 miles or 175 miles to get their visa, except that they were trying to put people off from coming here. That that was their calculation anyway. And it's uh, the hostile environment logic. That's what, it's, they're it's, experiencing it's, that hostile yeah. environment mm. before they even get here. Yeah, but that's an interesting political question. Why wouldn't Boris Johnson want Roxlana to come here and, and strengthen our economy? Now, there's a very important answer to that, that he has decided politically to make a virtue out of Brexit's border control. Now, of course, I would define making a virtue out of that border control in that you use it however you want it. If you want to let in Ukrainians at a time of national emergency, then you do so. You can choose to align with, align with the EU if you want, when it makes sense to do so, but not when it doesn't. 
But he's now interpreting that in a slightly different way, that he's interpreting the border control, I think, to actually let fewer people in and to make a virtue of it. At the Tory party conference, he was basically saying, look, labour shortages are necessary pain because the um, employers get worried. That means they're going to put up salaries. And then this is what we need in Britain. We need to move away from this low productivity, high immigration model towards a um, higher productivity, higher wages model. Now, at the time, I had a lot of sympathy about that argument, more than you, if I can remember, Kate. And um, Yes, th- I had very little sympathy for that argument. Yeah, I thought but- it was economically illiterate, and it was only going to lead to inflation, and I feel like there's been some truth in that. Well, here's the thing. At the time, I was looking at the salaries for HGV drivers. They were, at the time, in shortage, and the salaries were soaring. And it sort of stood to reason to me that if there is a shortage of labour and you desperately want people to come work for you, you, you will put up, either you put up money and you pay them more, or you will automate the jobs and try to put humans in the higher sector. And I thought this is something we need. I think one of our problems in Britain is we don't have enough computers doing jobs that humans are doing. People normally worry the other way around. But I think that we're one of the least automated countries in Europe and that we had been using low-wage, low-skill immigration for quite some time in a way that was leading to some pretty dodgy habits amongst our employers. And I thought a corrective to that would be good for the economy and it would force employers to invest in higher-wage work and also in higher-skilled work. Now, here we are, I don't know how many months down the line. Now, in your argument, Kate, that this wouldn't happen, it would just lead to high inflation has certainly proven more true than my argument. Well, let's give us both some credit here because, I mean, I think a few things can be true at the same time. I remember writing a piece last summer about how the combination of COVID and Brexit was quite clearly going to give a wage bump to people who had, for a decade at least, been experiencing low wages. And riding the natural wave of the market and the shortages was going to be a good thing for those people. And so on that point, Fraser, I think you're completely true. What I found very odd was that pivot from here's what's organically happening because of very inorganic measures that the governments around the world have taken to lock down and reopen. If people at the lower end of the spectrum are getting a boom from that, good. It's very different to the prime minister standing up and saying, actually, a policy of intentional shortages and an intentional supply and demand shocks is how we're going to raise wages is quite another thing indeed. And I thought, gosh, if his only plan for getting wages up is to keep supplies limited, that is going to be inflationary. And I think that is indeed what's happened. But but, but the thing is, though, that this is an economic argument which he's applying. Now, you can argue one way or the other. You can argue that he's he's right to think the labour shortages will put up wages, or you can argue that he's wrong. What is true right now is he thinks he's right, and he's sticking to that course, which is why he is reluctant to let people in. Fraser, on that point, and my last question to you, earlier this week, you spoke to James Heapy, MP, the Armed Forces Minister on LBC, and you asked him, why aren't you getting rid of this bureaucracy for letting more Ukrainian refugees in? Why aren't you making this easier? And he said, quote, watch this space. Now, we have been watching this space, and there have been some changes, some of them positive, but nothing like what the rest of Europe has done. Are you still watching this space? Well, yes, but since I spoke to him, I mean, the government has you know, widened its criteria a bit. They have made some improvements, although we're still requiring visas. I mean, my point to him was surely a Ukrainian passport can suffice. We don't need to ask whether they deserve asylum or not. They're shelling the hospitals, they're filling the mass graves. Of course, they deserve asylum. So I was proposing cheering up with a passport and that would be it. 
Now, the visa requirements have expanded, but you still need a visa. You still need, literally, soldiers in Warsaw trying to process the the, the red tape. And to... you still need to have, broadly speaking, you still need to have family members here. Yeah, and this is where I differ with the Prime Minister. He will still see this as a labour market argument. I would say that when war breaks and we're faced with the biggest refugee crisis in the post-war history, then you put all that out the window. It's like when COVID happened. It was an emergency. People made decisions you would never have made in pre-COVID times. When you've got two million Ukrainians, the vast majority women and children, crossing the continent, looking for shelter, looking to put a roof over their heads, you stop worrying about the trajectory of your labour market response and you take a humanitarian view and you give them shelter because that is who we are as a country. And it, by the way, is who we always have been. I mean, Britain has got a pretty good track record. I think we spent more than any other European country helping Syrian refugees. We helped them more in camps than in here, but we did a lot for them. I mean, when um, Idi Amin was kicking out the Ugandan nations, I think we not just accepted them, but we flew in. 20, 25,000 of them, Pretty Patel's family, were in that cohort, although she, her family arrived a bit earlier. So I still think that we're in an anomalously uncharitable position. But I'll tell you what, Kate. Do you and I represent the average voter in the street? No, we do not. We are both liberals when it comes to asylum. We both shared a platform once, both arguing for an amnesty for undocumented migrants. Now, what sort of minority does that put us in? A pretty small one. However, Fraser, if you look at the public polling right now, a strong majority of Brits do want to open doors to Ukrainian refugees, which I think goes back to your Brexit point, that if the idea wasn't to limit or grow or do anything specific to immigration numbers, but just to be in control of them, it's very clear, I think, now that the British public would like to accept far more of these Ukrainian refugees. As you say, that is what this country does. The question now is whether or not the government is willing to implement it. Fraser, thanks for joining me. Thank you.